Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is finally Friday of this short week that feels like a long week. It is the 9th of April. Hey, Jan. Hey, TGIF. Absolutely. You got some plans for the weekend? I'm going to your husband's birthday dinner on Saturday night. I like that you remembered that because I totally (laughs) forgot that it was his birthday. Thank you so much for reminding me. (laughs) All right, on the briefing today, too little, too late. Yeah, we're going to ask whether the coalition can win back the female vote. The most important characteristics for leaders to have which matter for their popularity and uh, for their success electorally is whether they can be considered trustworthy and honest. That is our briefing topic in just a moment. First, here are the big news stories of today. So there's been a big development in our vaccine rollout. Young and middle-aged people will be encouraged not to get the AstraZeneca jab due to blood clot concerns. At the current time, the use of the Pfizer vaccine uh, is preferred over the AstraZeneca vaccine in adults aged less than 50 years. That was the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Paul Kelly, speaking there in a press conference last night. Um, He was joined by the Prime Minister, the Health Minister and the Health Department Secretary. So clearly a significant announcement here. The PM said that the Australian Technical Advisory Group, this is a group of experts that advises the Health Minister on vaccines, the PM said they'd spent two days considering the evidence for a link between people receiving the AstraZeneca jab and developing blood clots. We've been very clear about what the very low level of risk is here. It is rare, but a serious risk for those who can find themselves in that situation. So this comes after the UK announcement yesterday that they would be encouraging people under 30 to get a different vaccine to AstraZeneca after fatal blood clots had developed in a a very small number of recipients. So we've gone one step further by encouraging everyone under 50 not to get it. There have been other European countries as well that have limited the use of the AstraZeneca drug, um, again, after people develop blood clots. Now, data from Europe and the UK suggests that blood clots were occurring in 5 to 10 out of every million people who got the jab. Um, Our Health Department Secretary, Dr Brennan Murphy, admitted that the new advice is going to cause a bit of a shake-up in the way that we roll out our vaccine schedule. When we move into the broader, younger population later on, we will have to recalibrate by reprioritising some Pfizer for younger people. And we are now reviewing all of the vaccine purchases we've made. Yeah, it's pretty concerning news. Um, They still want people over 50 to get it, but I imagine it really dints their confidence. Yeah, I mean, vaccine hesitancy is a problem, and I imagine that this is going to add to that with some measure of good cause as well. The good news is that young people are going to be the last to get the vaccine anyway, so Mm. that's going to be put off until, you know, the end of the year. Hopefully we'll know more about what's going on before we get to that point. Um, Just a quick update, though, on our vaccine rollout. We've... um, you know, we're, we're a whisker away from a big milestone, which is a million people vaccinated in Australia so far. We have also ordered 20 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. That's coming bit by bit over the course of 21. But the full 20 million shots won't be received until the end of the year. Well, there's a terrible track record on importing vaccines, mm. as well as a terrible track record on producing our own in terms of numbers. Mm. And now add this to the mix. Well, Greg Hunt says that Pfizer's been delivering stuff on time and they've been very happy with them. The issue is with AstraZeneca and the Europeans wanting to keep the drugs for themselves. So maybe it's a bit of a different situation with Pfizer. Lots of what Greg Hunt has said hasn't come true. That's also true. (laughs) Um, This is a shambles. 
Um, and it's interesting that Australia's taken a stronger position on the UK than this. Um, the, the cynic in me wonders whether they're sort of saved by the bell where we weren't going to have much of the AstraZeneca vaccine anyway because we're struggling to import it, struggling to produce it in the volume that we'd planned. be interesting to see where we go from here. And the Morrison government's taken another step towards fixing sexual assault and harassment in the workplace. Yeah, yesterday they announced that they would accept, to some extent, the 55 recommendations of a report from the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, which she gave them over a year ago. One of the key changes will mean politicians and judges will be able to lose their job for sexual harassment in the workplace. Yay! Yeah, and also (laughs) that they are liable should it happen in their workplace, just like the rest of the population. We will be subject to the same law as anybody else, which means you will be subject to the same consequences. That was Federal Employment Minister Michaelia Cash speaking yesterday. Um, Public servants like judges, politicians, uh, they're currently exempt from complaints about workplace gender discrimination and employers of volunteers as well because of a loophole which means they're technically not the complainant's employer. If sexual harassment is occurring in the workplace and it is proven, you can terminate a person for that. Yeah, that was uh, one of the other changes that they were hoping to bring about as a result of the report. Labor Senator Christina Keneally said that the government's response has been a long time coming. This today is long overdue, but it looks like a rush job. It looks like it has little detail. The report, as we said, was released last January. Um, The government's actually not responded to it until now. I guess the question is, will it be enough to win female voters back? That is the topic of our briefing in just a moment. And the US President Joe Biden has announced gun control measures, uh, including a ban on assault weapons. Enough, enough, enough. Every day in this country... 316 people are shot every single day. 106 of them die every day. This is an epidemic, for God's sake, and it has to stop. Yeah, there have been two mass shootings in the last few weeks. Eight people died at massage parlours in Atlanta, Georgia, and 10 people were killed at a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. So 11,000 people have already lost their lives to firearms this year in the US. Joe Biden said it's an international embarrassment and he called on Congress to pass these gun control bills that he's introducing and it includes a ban on some of the most popular guns in the US. We should also ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country. There's no reason someone needs a weapon of war with 100 rounds, 100 bullets. Sleepy Joe's not that sleepy, is he? He's getting a lot of stuff done in the US. Yeah, he is. He's, um, or trying to. I well, mean, this, this will need to get voted through by Congress. Yeah, that's right. Well, a similar bill was actually introduced in 2013. This was a month after the Sandy Hook Elementary School sh- shooting, um, a very high-profile shooting that targeted, you know, young children. It mm. was actually defeated mm. at the time. Americans seem to really like their guns. It'd be interesting to see if this one can get through, given that Democrats control both the House and the Senate this time around. Biden is introducing laws to ban something called ghost guns as well. Now, these are kits that allow people to build their own firearms, which can't be traced by police. Um, He also announced red flag laws that are designed to limit gun sales to high-risk customers as well. And the NRA, of course, are out there fighting back. Um, They've said that Biden's dismantling the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms, which is not technically true. He's banning the right to bear some arms. 
And an investigation into the 1979 Lunar Park ghost train fire could be reopened. The New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian said her government is considering a second inquest into the fire that killed six children and one adult. We've heard the plight of families and uh, and I can I can confirm that parts, the relevant parts of the New South Wales government are considering that. Now, this comes after the ABC commissioned a three-part documentary, Into the Blaze. We actually spoke to the host of that documentary, Caro Meldrum-Hanna, in mid-March. She told us that she suspected the fire was deliberately lit. Now, this all happened in a period of time where corruption was absolutely rife in New South Wales, particularly, from your street-level uniformed constable right up to, allegedly, a High Court judge. So the sources in her documentary claim that notorious crime boss Abe Saffron ordered bikies to start the fire. Yeah, it's worth noting it was blamed on an electrical fault by police at the time. And the first inquest into this actually ended with an open finding. Yeah, and when we interviewed Caro, we we put the question to her, you know, if you're going to reopen these tragic stories for the sake of a documentary, you know, and they're produced in a way that is a little bit entertaining, this true crime genre, you want to have an impact on the actual story so that you're not just sort of dredging up people's trauma just for entertainment. And she she assured us at the time that this was really going to drop the bomb, this documentary. So it's really, really good to see that now that that's happened, they're actually considering reopening the investigation because the family members who, who lost people in that fire are still hurting from this and still feel like justice hasn't been done. So a listener called Mia sent us this message. Uh, She wrote to us, Hey guys, big fan of the podcast. Thanks, Mia. It's good to hear that you'll be talking about the Morrison government and their response to these sexual assault allegations. As a young woman who will vote for the first time in the next election and hopes to study media slash politics, this news coming out is very discouraging for me wanting to study politics and work in a parliament office one day. The culture of misogyny and incompetence of our Prime Minister to take appropriate action is a disgrace and guarantees that I will not vote for the Liberals in the next election. Wow, strong message there from Mia. Thank you for that. Um, And the point she's raising is going to be the subject for today's briefing. How much has the recent round of sexual assault issues damaged the government with female voters? And what will Scott Morrison's government have to do to win them back? So polling on female voters is not looking good for Scott Morrison at the moment. A Guardian Essential poll out last week showed that the PM's approval rating dropped 10 points in a fortnight to 57%. But what is interesting is that his approval with women voters is down 16 points since the Brittany Higgins story broke back in February. With male voters, however, his approval rating has remained relatively unchanged. Yeah, so there are a number of missteps the Prime Minister's made that could be responsible for that massive drop in approval with female voters. Here are some of them. Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father. Not far from here, such marches are being met with bullets. You'd be aware in your own organisation that there is a person who has had a complaint made against them. This has taken me deeper into this issue than before. Where have you been? So in the last few weeks, the coalition's tried to take substantial action to address some of these concerns. Uh, Yesterday, the Prime Minister announced it would implement 55 recommendations contained in Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's Respect at Work report. And they actually got that report last January, so they're responding to it now over a year later. And they agreed to 40 of the recommendations, in principle to five, and in part to one, and noted nine of them. 
The most notable was that politicians and judges would base the same sexual harassment workplace laws as everyone else. Um, There was also the cabinet reshuffle last week. They promoted more women into senior roles. Um, He moved Christian Porter out of two of his ministries, including the role of Attorney General. He also appointed a new Minister for Women's Safety, Anne Russian, who's convening a forum on women's safety in July. And he's also said he's open to the idea of gender quotas. So to get a sense of, of how much those steps have changed female voters' minds, we actually went to the street and just asked a few random mm. female voters. He's putting women there for to make us feel happier, which it doesn't. It's sure the equality of women and women, and women can have power. It means women have more voice. I just think it was a reactive move um, from the Liberal Party. No matter what they do, I still don't really care. It doesn't matter who's at the face of it. It's all the same. It's all the same shit, you know, ultimately, I think. Wow, okay, those voters not... <laughs> Not sounding too impressed In that very random, very tiny sample. Exactly. I do wonder if they were people that would have ever voted for Scott Morrison, so whether they've changed their votes or it's just hard in their opposition. Yeah. Well, let's go a little bit deeper into the attitudes of female voters towards the coalition now. Dr Sarah Cameron is a political scientist in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. She joins us now. Do you think the government's response to the issues around the treatment of women will lose them the next election? What we've seen over time is that the Liberal Party has been uh, losing the support of women. So back in the 1990s, uh, the Liberal Party actually had more support among women than men. And over time, that gender gap in voting behaviour has reversed. So in the last election, there was actually the biggest gender gap in voting for the Liberal Party on record, with uh, 10% more men than women giving Mm. their first preference to the Liberal Party. Um, so there's that long-term trend that the party would be aware of and the events of the last couple of months have the potential to further exacerbate that gender gap in voter behaviour. That said, elections are often determined by the most salient issues of the time So the government has actually um, had a huge amount of support over the past year because of the COVID pandemic and Mm. Australia's relative success in handling the pandemic. They had a huge uh, boost in approval ratings as a result of the pandemic. And so what the most important issues are at the time of the election will play a role in determining the result. Really interesting that you paint a longer term trend of female voters turning away from the coalition. If you think back to the last election, there were uh, a range of gender related issues there as well. The treatment of um, Julia Banks, the the former Liberal MP, Julie Bishop as well. Um, So I think it's really interesting not just to think about this current crisis that the government's facing. What what are those deeper trends that have been driving female voters away for some time? Well, there's been a number of factors that have transformed the relationship between gender and voting in Australia. As back in the 1990s, uh, the Labor Party had an advantage among men. The Liberal Party had an advantage among women. So back in the early 90s, women were similarly underrepresented in both the major parties. Just 13% of parliamentarians in 1990 were women. And what we've seen since then is that Labor has dramatically increased their proportion of women in Parliament, reaching 47% at the last election, and that was achieved through party quotas. The Liberal Party, on the other hand, has made 
much slower progress, reaching just 23% at the last election. So there's factors both in the electorate and in the parties that have underpinned this reversal of the gender gap in voting behaviour. What do you think is the element that is really changing female voters' minds in this, in this recent round of scandals? People evaluate leaders on different characteristics. And in the last election, Scott Morrison uh, actually did a lot better than Bill Shorten. Um, what we see over time is that the most important characteristics for leaders to have, which matter for their popularity and uh, for their success electorally, is um, whether they can be considered trustworthy and honest. Mm. So anything that raises issues about whether this is a leader that you can trust is potentially damaging um, for the government. We're talking about general attitudes in the population towards women. We're talking about violence that happens in people's private homes. Do you think voters understand what is and isn't within the direct control of the federal government? Obviously, they can provide more leadership on these more attitudinal and cultural factors. But do you think when people go to the, the ballot box, they, they take with them a true understanding of, of what is and isn't in direct control of, of our federal politicians? Voters are looking for leaders to show leadership. Uh, and we've seen that in the polling data over time with Scott Morrison. So if you look at his approval ratings at the time of the bushfire crisis in late 2019 and early 2020, Morrison's approval ratings at that time were exceptionally low because he wasn't seen as appropriately leading on that issue, in particular as he took a family holiday in Hawaii at the time of a major national crisis. And then with the COVID-19 pandemic, that trend turned around with exceptionally high approval ratings for Morrison uh, that really persisted from the beginning of the pandemic up until uh, recently with the Brittany Higgins allegations in February. Why do you think the male approval rating of Scott Morrison hasn't changed? Yeah, good question. And I mean, I, I don't know. This is an issue that has resonated with women more so than men. And that's presumably part of the, the challenge to be addressed. A lot of the, the conversation in the media might focus on, you know, a range of issues like social issues. But, but when it comes down to it, people vote about putting food on the table and, and having a job and those financial issues, basically. I mean, what do you make of the priorities that voters have? So back in the 2019 election, the top three issues were uh, the economy, health and environmental issues. And those priorities can really differ um, based on, on gender. So the economy was more important among men, health was more important among women, and then among young people, uh, the environment was by far the most important issue, um, whereas among older voters, the economy was considered much more important. There's some fluctuation from election to election and also uh, issues that are always important, particularly the economy. So they'll need to find a way to reverse that trend for their electoral mm. success in future. Well, they're trying. Um, I think the coalition's trying to respond to some of these 
um, recent issues and I think perhaps even long-term trends. I mean, they've promoted more women um, in Cabinet. Um, I think that Scott Morrison has said that he's open to the possibility of quotas. Uh, There's a forum on women's safety happening in July. Uh, So do you think that these actions will sort of make a difference to voters or do you think it really is more about Scott Morrison's character? It's a bit of both. But, yeah, certainly we have seen a big turnaround, at least in some areas, like on the question of quotas. Really quite unusual to see many senior figures in the Liberal Party open to the idea of electoral quotas that highlights that they are seeing this as a concern for their electoral prospects at the next election. So they're certainly making some changes, if not all the changes that people would like Mm. to be seeing on the issues that have come up over the last couple of months. So that was Dr Sarah Cameron, who's a political scientist at the School of Social and Political Sciences at Sydney Uni. Um, Jem, what I found really interesting from what she said was that longer running trend about how um, female voting patterns have shifted, where in the 90s more women were voting for the coalition than Labor. And it sounds like one of the biggest things that's changed is representation. Mm. The the Labor Party is so much closer to 50-50. And that could be the real clincher here, because if there are more women involved in these responses that Scott Morrison has made mistakes on, the empathy would have been so much easier to display. The understanding would have been so much better. Less of those mistakes would have happened. Maybe that's why Scott Morrison has hinted that he might, in fact, support quotas for his party. It's a very big move. It's a it's a shift in um, rhetoric comparative to what he's been saying over the last few years. Maybe he realises, hey, this might just be the only way yeah, to do it. It doesn't fit with his ideology, but he is a pragmatist, so he's seeing that it it might be what they need to do to get there. So you can have quotas, but it will still take several elections yep. for that to really shift the needle on representation for the coalition. So that's going to take some time. He might lose an election before that happens. So I guess these other policy questions and these other character questions will still be really important going forward. But ultimately, my my sense is that when we get to the election next year, as always, it's it's the economy that really dominates people's thinking. So this will swing some votes, but will it be enough? Uh, it also comes down to the the numbers. They are on a thin, almost minority now, depending on what happens with Andrew Lamming. So that's another key factor too. Totally. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, um, Jamila will be here hosting the weekend version of The Briefing. Jamila, who have you got this week? Thanks, Tom. Tomorrow I'm going to be chatting with Abby Chatfield. You will probably remember her from The Bachelor or The Bachelor in Paradise or I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here where she was crowned the winner Uh, just last year. So she is a serial reality TV show contestant, but she's not quite what you'd expect. I found my chat with her completely delightful and interesting and engaging. She's super smart and really reflecting on the way she's been portrayed publicly and why it is that so many people hated her because of how she was shown on television. Mm, a deep chat with Abby Chatfield on the briefing tomorrow, the weekend episode. Um, sounds very interesting, Jamila. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the briefing all week. Hope you have a fantastic weekend. Catch you Monday. Listener.